Good morning, dear brothers and sisters. Greetings to you all in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a joy to come to you via the medium of technology this morning. Although we are unable to meet physically, it is a wonderful opportunity for us in the Lord's provision to meet this way online. And it's our heartfelt prayer that we will soon be able to meet together physically and have fellowship and enjoy that fellowship with one another. So for this morning's passage, we'll look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. I will just wait for about 10 seconds for you to open that passage. And uh, I will read that for you in its entirety. But when I come to verse 20, I will request all of us to read it together. Verses 20 and 21. So I'm going to read from the ESV. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now let's all read the remaining two verses together. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. About 100 years ago, a young man from a wealthy family entered Yale University. His family intended that after he finishes his degree, he would enter a secular job in the United States of America. But God gripped his heart with the needs of China that he volunteered to go to that country, much to the dismay of his family and his friends as well. He left America, but he never made it to China, succumbing to a disease before reaching that distant shore. After his death, a note was found in his baggage that summarized his entire life. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. An opening story like this brings some questions into our minds. What is the perspective that you and I need to have to live a life like that? What is the perspective that you and I need to live, you and I need to have to live a life like that? A pandemic like COVID-19 must jolt us into asking such important questions, even as we are in the midst of a lockdown right now. And the answer that Paul gives to that question is that you and I must live a cross-shaped life. You and I must live a cross-shaped life. But what is a cross-shaped life? A cross-shaped life is one that, ha that has as, at its center the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a life that knows the power of his resurrection, shares in his sufferings, and becomes like him in his death. So although we presently live through the power made available through Christ's resurrection, our lives forever ought to be marked by the cross. And that is a cross-shaped life. 
Now the question that comes to our minds is this. How do we live this cross-shaped life, whether there's a pandemic around us or not? How do we live this cross-shaped life, whether there's a pandemic around us or not? We need to think about this question very seriously. We need to live the cross-shaped life right now as we find ourselves in the midst of this pandemic, as well as live the same kind of a cross-shaped life even after things return to normalcy. So this Sunday morning, let's seriously ask ourselves this question as we are in the midst of a lockdown that is around us. And the serious question needs to be asked so you and I can make the necessary course correction in our Christian lives even before things return to normalcy. So the passage we're going to look at this morning is a very significant one in the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. This passage, in fact, helps tie together several items that he presented in that epistle. Paul, in that epistle, has been highlighting the theme of joy in suffering. In other words, he is talking about living a cross-shaped life, a life that has at its center or focus the cross of Christ. And he gave two examples of this kind of life in that letter the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 2, and Paul himself in chapter 3. If you remember, in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, Paul said, Christ as God humbled himself in becoming human, being obedient to death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. He is glorified in heaven. And then in chapter 3, verses 4 through 14, Paul said he, in turn, suffered the loss of all former things, like his pedigree, his credentials, and his zeal, etc., etc., because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ his Lord, so as finally to be confirmed in his death. And he was sure about the future glory that awaited him. Notice now, in both cases, there is suffering and then there is glory. Christ suffered and is now in glory. Paul and the Philippians also suffered, but will attain glory later. So today's passage will reveal to us two things that you and I must do to live a cross-shaped life. Two things that you and I must do to live a cross-shaped life. Paul discussed these two features in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21 which is what we read uh, at the beginning of this message. So, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. In verses 17 through 19, you will see that you must emulate godly Christians and avoid those who distract you from the heavenly prize. You must emulate godly Christians and avoid those who distract you from the heavenly prize. You and I must follow men and women who walk the path of the cross. And we must also steer clear of those who reject the cross in the way they live. That's exactly what Paul exhorted the Philippians to do. Paul told the Philippians to follow him, but beware of those who, whose minds are entirely on earthly things. In explaining the importance of this, Paul did two things. First, 
Paul appealed to them to follow him and others who take after him in their lifestyles. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join me in join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul's point so far in this epistle that those who know Christ and have a clear vision of the glory that awaits them respond to present difficulties with joy. And that's his point so far in the epistle. And it is not because they like to suffer, but because their joy is in the Lord. Now, as Paul binds all these concepts together, he appeals to the Philippians to join together in imitating him. Now, here again is the concept of unity. He is asking them to join together in imitating him. The idea of imitation comes from Paul's Jewish heritage, where a pupil learned not just by receiving instruction, but by putting into practice the example of the teacher. The one who imitates internalizes and lives out the model presented by the teacher. Now Paul is asking them to together imitate him in two things. Number one, he is asking them to imitate him in suffering for the sake of Christ and for the gospel. Number two, he is also asking them to imitate him in behavior that exemplifies the gospel. In behavior that exemplifies the gospel. Also, Paul is asking them to take note of. Notice the phrase there. He is asking them to take note of or be on the lookout for those who walk in keeping with the example of Paul. Now, we can't be absolutely sure who these people are that Paul is referring to. But most probably, Paul may have been referring to various itinerants who visited the church at Philippi. And Paul was one of them. So the point here is that the Philippians had to observe those who walked in the way of the cross and were living in eager, in eager anticipation of the future and they had to follow them. Now imagine this with me. If somebody came to CBF and said, if you want to learn how to pray, follow me. If you want to become a faithful evangelist, follow me. If you want to see compassion in action, follow me. What would we think of a person like that? Now, none of us would dare make statements like that, isn't it? Yet, six different times in the New Testament, Paul says, follow me. Why does he say that? Is he a self-obsessed braggart? Um, what did he mean by that? Did he think he was a perfect Christian? No, not at all, because in chapter 3, verse 12, he clearly says that he had not yet arrived at a spiritual completion. Then how could Paul say, follow me? What he meant was, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Now think of the Christian life as a long parade from earth to heaven. At the head of the line is Jesus Christ the captain of our salvation. Step by step, he is leading his followers to glory. It's a long road with many twists and turns, but he's faithfully committed to seeing that we all make it to the end. Since the parade is long, we need folks in front of us who can keep us on track. We need mentors. We need models. 
We need heroes, if you will. People who are farther along in the spiritual journey, who can keep us pointed toward the Lord. Without such input, we are likely to veer off the trail and end up in the wilderness. So let me ask you this question this morning as you listen to me. Who are you following? Who is up ahead of you showing the way, pointing out the rough places and the rough patches on the road and making sure you don't make a wrong turn? We all need people like that in our lives. None of us ever reaches a point where you and I can say, I can do this on my own. Now, some of us may have been Christians for a long time, but we need to realize that now as much as ever, we need the encouragement of being around people who pray better than we do, who witness more than we do, and who have a deeper knowledge of God's word than we do. We need their example. We need their encouragement and the challenge they provide to our lives. Now, this touches a very practical point. Would you like to learn to pray? It's not hard. Just hang around people who pray. Would you like to grow in joy? Spend time with joyful people. Would you wish you had a heart for the world? Spend time with missionaries and watch your heart change little by little. Are you struggling with temptation? Find someone who has fought and won the same battle. Would you like to teach better? Listen to some gifted teachers and learn from them. Follow faithful examples. Follow godly examples. And soon enough, their godly example will make you a better Christian. Now let me ask you another question. Who is following you? Think about the image of a great parade once again. Jesus Christ stands at the front, followed by a multitude of people. So you simply begin to follow the crowd that is in front of you. And as long as they are following Jesus, you are following him through their good example. Now look behind you. Did you see all the faces peering in your direction? They are following you. And you didn't realize it. I didn't realize it either. As long as you follow those who follow Christ, you'll be following Christ too. And so will those who follow you. Remember, right now, someone is following you. Right now, someone looks to you to show them the way. Right now, someone prays because they heard you pray. Right now, someone is watching you fight your personal battles. And right now, someone wants to be like you. You are their model. Keep on the path. Keep your eyes on the prize. Find some good examples and follow them. And don't forget that someone is following you as well, just as you're following others who follow Jesus Christ. Don't let that someone down. And that's why Paul appealed to the Philippians to follow him and others who take after him in their lifestyles. Secondly, Paul warned the Philippians of many who are completely earthly-minded and have abandoned, abandoned the cross. Look at verses 18 and 19. For many of uh, whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destruction, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Why does Paul want them to keep their eyes on those who imitate him? The reason is, it is because many people 
are there whose walk is the exact opposite. Many walk as the enemies of Christ. And who are these people? It is very difficult to identify them. They haven't appeared so far in this epistle and they don't appear again. And most likely, they are professing Christians who are not walking in the ways of the Lord or who think of themselves as walking in the ways of the Lord despite the way they live. These are the people that Paul had often warned them about. And Paul gives a fivefold description of them. The first thing he says about them is that they are enemies of the cross. What does it mean to be an enemy of the cross? Go back to what Paul has said about Christ and himself in this epistle. Christ, who was God, left the glory of heaven and humbled himself to death on a cross. Paul, on his part, counted all his credentials as loss for the sake of Christ. Now this tells us that the cross stands as God's negation of human wisdom and power. The cross means death to our pride. And so it creates enemies of those who refuse to go the way of the cross. And it is particularly because of their conduct that Paul referred to these people as enemies of the cross. In other words, don't, those who fo don't follow uh, Paul's pattern are enemies of the cross. Those who don't follow Paul's pattern are enemies of the cross. The second thing that he says is that their end is destruction. Those who have abandoned the cross, both for themselves and as a model for Christian life, are destined for destruction. Paul is talking about the end outcome or the eschatological outcome of those who are enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. The third thing he says is that their God is their belly. These people are driven by fleshly impulses. Those who are enemies of Christ's cross have failed to accept the death of the old self and have disqualified themselves for the new life because they were serving their own fleshly desires. Their God is their belly. Fourthly, he says that they glory in their shame. The things that they glory in and that which they boast about, Paul says, are actually shameful things in light of the cross. And fifthly, he says, they set their minds on earthly things. These are people who have abandoned the pursuit of the heavenly prize in favor of what belongs only to the present scheme of things. Remember, for Paul, his mind is altogether set on Christ, and for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. But for the enemies of the cross, their focus is altogether earthward. So let me summarize uh, their features for you so you may spot them easily when you find them. They claim to be Christians. Their lives betray them. They live for self-gratification. They brag about their sins. That's why Paul says their glory is their shame. They drag others down with them. They will destroy you if you let them. They're going to hell. Don't go with them. And that's why Paul warned them of many who are completely earthly minded and who have abandoned the cross. Now, as an application, let me ask you this question as I ask myself this question. Do you follow the right people in your life? Do you follow the right people in your life? We must follow godly examples. 
because the ungodliness expressed by unbelievers is enmity with and contradictory to the gospel. We must live or learn to live a godly life because ungodliness is the antithesis of the gospel. Did you know it is possible to contradict the gospel by how you and I live? Why? Because the gospel is who Jesus is and what he did to save sinners from their sin. Not merely from hell, though it is a blessed thought as a consequence of salvation. But Jesus gave himself to purify a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The ancient Persians would play a game with a slave, making him a king for three days. They lavish him with gifts and fine food and clothing and any pleasure that he desired. What was the catch? At the end of three days, he would be killed. They had morbid fun with, with that kind of a game. It reminds me of our world today. People enjoy the short-term pleasures of life with no regard for the destruction which looms over them, over their heads. Let me say it this way this morning. Not every relationship is good for you. Some of you listening to me are aware of relationships in your life that are pulling you away from the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be a romantic relationship or a friendship at school or college or at work or perhaps with a neighbor or someone you met at a social gathering or on a trip. God's point is very clear. If a relationship is pulling you away from Jesus Christ, you must break it off. Do it now and let's stop making excuses. I can't tell you who needs to hear these words, but I do know someone needs to hear them. Know the enemies of the cross. Mark them. Avoid them. There is no other way to win the prize that is set for us in the future. So in verses 17 through 19, we saw that we must emulate godly Christians and avoid those who distract you from the heavenly prize. Then there's a second thing we need to know to live a cross-shaped life, and that is in verses 20 and 21. They say that you and I must remember that we don't belong here, and our future is a glorious one with Christ. You and I must remember that we don't belong here, and our future is a glorious one with our Lord Jesus Christ. We live in this world, but we don't belong to this world. And we have a heavenly prize awaiting us for which we must strive and press on. And that's what Paul told the Philippians. Paul reminded the Philippians of their heavenly citizenship and the ultimate prize that awaited them. He clarified this by two things. Number one, Paul pointed them to their heavenly citizenship and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the immediate contrast here. The people who walk contrary to Paul have their minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. Why should the Philippians imitate Paul and observe those who follow him? Paul gives the answer, because our citizenship is in heaven. And therefore, our focus must be there. Our future glory is in contrast to those whose end is destruction. Paul is helping the Philippians recognize 
that he and they together are participants in that future glory, in that eschatological glory. Now, Paul here also uses the language of citizenship, and that needs to be understood against the backdrop of their Roman citizenship. These words would have had a special meaning to the Philippians since they were granted Roman citizenship even though they were about 800 miles away from the imperial capital. They lived in Philippi, but their citizenship was in Rome. The city was governed by Roman law. They practiced Roman customs. A Roman could go to Philippi and still feel at home. In a similar way, we live on earth, but our citizenship is in heaven. As the old song says, the world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. So to those Christians who lived in a city that took pride in its Roman citizenship, Paul is saying to them, you have a higher citizenship than that of Rome. You are citizens of heaven. Just as your Roman citizenship greatly affects the way you live, even more so, your heavenly citizenship should affect the way you live. And that life ought to be a cross-shaped life, one that knows Christ in the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Paul now comes to the ultimate concern, which is with their living in the present as those who are in pursuit of the heavenly glory. The rest of the verse focuses on that. Notice the rest of the verse. From which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul is saying here. We eagerly await. There's an eagerness to it. There's an eagerness to waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. It has the idea of a child standing on tiptoe, waiting for his daddy to come home from work in the evening at the end of the day. Now, who do we await? Paul says we await a savior. The Philippians would have understood the term in connection with Caesar, who was also regarded as a savior. He saved them from any attack and war. But Paul reminded them that their savior is from heaven and he's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Every tongue will confess his lordship in the end. He is the ultimate reason for our rejoicing in the Lord. The Lord is the savior by whose grace we have been redeemed and whose coming we eagerly anticipate even as we in our present troubles are being confirmed in his likeness. And that's what Paul did. Paul pointed them to their heavenly citizenship and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul reassured them that their earthly bodies would be transformed to be like Christ's glorious body. Look at verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What does Christ as our Savior do when he returns? Here's the answer. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. The emphasis here is on the bodily resurrection of believers. Paul is making a contrast between our present bodies which are perishable and the transformed heavenly body which is imperishable. The present body is weak, but it will be raised in glory and power. 
our bodies will be transformed into the likeness of the man from heaven, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word transform here comes from a Greek word that is the root of our English word schematic, meaning a drawing or a diagram that shows the inner workings of a device. Paul ends this section with a ringing declaration that one day God is going to rescheme our earthly bodies. We will be raised from the dead and re-engineered to be like his glorious body. In the words of one commentator, we will be raised and beautified. I like the thought. I really like the sound of it. I want to be raised and I definitely want to be beautified. How is he going to do all that? Look at the last part of the verse. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Here's a final word of assurance to the Philippians. In keeping with the same power by which he will transform their present bodies that are suffering, Christ will in the same way subject all things to himself, including the Roman emperor and all those who in the Roman emperor's name are causing the Philippians to suffer. It simply cannot be said any better than what Paul said, both for them and for us as well today. Think of it. We will have glorified bodies. No more glasses. No more GERD. No more walkers. No more ICUs. No more fear of COVID-19. And more than that, no more death. No more decay. That's the price to which Paul is asking the Philippians to press on toward, to press toward, to strive toward. There's a question that I'd like to ask myself, which I'd like to ask you as well. Do you think about the glorious prize that awaits you in the future? Do you think about the glorious prize that awaits you in the future? There's a beautiful illustration that I like. There was a young woman who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and had been given three months to live. So as she was getting her things in order, she contacted her pastor and had him come over to her house to discuss certain aspects of her funeral. She told him which songs she wanted sung at her funeral, which scripture she would like read, and which outfit she would like to be buried in and all of that. Everything was in order and the pastor was preparing to leave when the young woman suddenly remembered something very important to her. There's one more thing, she said excitedly. What's that? asked the pastor. This is very important, said the young woman. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor stood looking at the young woman, not knowing quite what to say. That surprises you, doesn't it? asked the young woman. Well, to be honest, said the pastor, I'm puzzled about it and by the request that you made. The young woman explained, in all my years of attending church gatherings and potlucks and all of that, I always remember when the dishes of the main course were being cleared away. Someone would lean over to me and they would say to me, keep the fork because there is something better coming. Keep the fork because there is something better coming. And she said it was always her favorite part because she knew something better was coming like a velvety chocolate cake or a deep dish apple pie or something like that. Something wonderful, something with substance. So she said, 
I just want people to see me there in that casket with my fork in my hand. And I want them to wonder, what's with the fork? And pastor, when you preach your message at my funeral, I want you to tell them that the fork reminds me that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And there came the day of her funeral. She was there in her casket. She was holding that fork in her right hand. And everybody passed by that casket looking at her, wondering what that fork is about. And the pastor just smiled until everybody settled down for the message. And he got onto the pulpit and he began to preach. And in the middle of his sermon, he said this, Every one of you may have been wondering about what that fork is about in her right hand. A few days before she died, I had this conversation with her. And she said, she wanted this to symbolize that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. My dear brothers and sisters, our best is yet to come. Some of us may be afraid of the COVID-19 that's around us. But remember, during this lockdown, or even later on, whenever you pick up a fork to eat something, or even you see a fork in the kitchen, remember this, that our best is yet to come. Our best is yet to come. Let me remind you that despite appearances often to the contrary, God is in control of everything. And that our salvation is not just for today, but forever. That Christ is coming again. And that at his coming, we will inherit the final glory that belongs to Christ alone and to those who are his, to those who belong to him. So what's the point of this morning's passage? The whole passage basically says, you and I can live the cross-shaped life by emulating godly believers and by pressing on toward the heavenly prize. By emulating godly believers and by pressing on toward the heavenly prize. We don't merely await the end, but eagerly press on toward the goal, since the final prize is simply the consummation of what God has already accomplished for us through the death and the resurrection of our Savior, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. David Livingston, a pioneer medical missionary to Africa, when he returned to Great Britain, was asked this question, where do you want to go now? His answer was immediate. He said, I am ready to go anywhere, provided it be forward. I am ready to go anywhere, provided it be forward. Let's have that perspective. There could be several things that are happening around us in the world. The hope there for the world outside may be bleak, but let's have our eyes fixed on the prize that is ahead of us because the best is yet to come for you and for me. Thank you for your patience. I hope the Lord has encouraged you through his word. Let's pray. Father God, this morning, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the writings of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for making it clear to us that we need to lead a cross-shaped life, a cross-centered life, a life that has joy in suffering as we take after models like Paul, and many others around us who are godly examples for us. Help us to emulate godly examples and help us in turn to be godly examples to other people so that they could emulate us as well, imitate us. 
and help all of us together to strive towards the prize, the heavenward calling of God that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for such a great hope. And we want to thank you that our citizenship is in heaven and we await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the very power that enables him to bring everything under his control is able to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.